Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and that Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders and custodians past, present and emerging and to those of the lands that this podcast reaches. As I embark on this process of speaking and listening, I'm doing so in the home of one of the longest continuous cultures of oral storytelling on the planet. I love the idea that the mark is the mark. The moment is the moment. The terror and horror of of any impending action is part of that action and that action precipitates more action and that that is the work. Like, to me, that is amazing. You know, and and a mistake can be treated with desire and humiliation can become power and you know the revelation of the vulnerability of personhood is so intrinsic to how every work I make I think. Hi I'm Ty Snaith and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non-binary artists I respect and admire. In each of these conversations we attempt to break down the how and why of what we make. Together, we look at physical processes and how they relate not only to outcomes, but also connect to the unconscious or non-visual parallels and needs in our lives. Today, I'm speaking with Agatha Goth snape Hailing from Sydney, Agatha is kind of a word magician. She's also a mother and has recently found herself as a reluctant muse. But that doesn't really go far enough to describe the kind of successful, deep-thinking practice that Agatha has cultivated and shared over the past ten or so years. Join me as we delve into puzzling world with the most curious person I've met all week. We begin the conversation by trying to define Agatha's work. It is always interesting in introducing artists when they come on, and I know that definitely conceptual artist is something you would... Identify. No, no, no. I don't. I don't think so at all. But oh, good. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, I'm I'm happy that it's there as a something. No, rename. Tell me. Well, Tell I me. don't know. I really, I genuinely don't know. I wouldn't want to inter- interview myself and have to <laughs> introduce me because I wouldn't know. I and in fact, I don't even know if what my activities do are even they're so variable and I I don't I feel I mean I feel like it's a little bit like you you have a lot of different activities you do and and I don't even think I don't I don't position myself particularly in a conceptual art lineage Hmm. I think other people do they do but (laughs) but I think maybe because a lot of my labor is in um, thinking thinking yeah and talking but I don't think that's that different from other artists who yeah. Mm. Isn't it interesting, though, how I think uh, the people around us that frame our practices have this urge to find the new conceptual artist? It's like they've gone, oh, it's Agatha. Yeah. I, do you <laughs> think that's what's happened? <laughs> I don't know. I, I really like I, – I was thinking about this the other day because I don't even think for someone that kind of – grew up around art mm. and by the time I was at uni most of my friends were performers or artists but I I have to say I, I'm not a I'm not a kind of virtuosic researcher or connoisseur of art I'm and, so glad to hear that and, <laughs> and and sometimes I'm horrified when I notice my um strategies 
have been carried out six years previously <laughs> by some major canonical artist. You know, like yep. that's how my blindness is quite prolific. But in some ways, that's um, that's a that's a lovely thing as well because if you knew about all of those works, you wouldn't do it. Yeah. So, and I don't want to undersell myself because I, I like you know. Let's a lot. be honest. You know, a bit. <laughs> I do know a bit. <laughs> but I just think I think um, I didn't come to my practice through. I came to it through trial and error and mm. kind of clumsiness, not through any particular consciousness of a particular historical lineage like conceptualism or kind of any genre. Mm. Like I you and, worked your way to that to this point through trying things out. Yeah, and seeing what makes sense. I think it's a lot the reason I guess the reason the conceptual thing is there is because I try my hardest to really follow a series of decisions and take away anything extraneous. So mm. um and I'm very conscious of um trying not to like uh, produce objects and and visual mm. litter. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really good. <laughs> and that's really and interesting. I think it's you know, so I really try and take things away. So it ends up looking quite reduced or quite minimal or quite or or being in a being process based. But um, and that ticks a lot of the boxes. It of, does of what people <laughs> envisage in their head yes. when they yeah. yeah. So and the other thing I was thinking about is I mean not many people can add muse to the end of their. Um, Introduction. Oh, no, very reluctant news. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> is it feel? Does it feel weird? Because traditionally we think of women who are muses. I mean, well, I do. I shouldn't say we, but I traditionally think of muses throughout art history as someone. I feel sorry for them often, but I don't feel sorry for you. Yeah. So how was that process for you? Oh, for people who don't know, um, you can say you were the the subject of an Archibald winning <laughs> entry. Yeah. We should say that. Yeah. Hmm. So I don't think there's anything. There's nothing necessarily said that I was his. I'm his muse. He's he is my partner, Mitch. <laughs> yep. um, uh I was his subject. I I was, and um, I kind of. Oh, I I I clearly have a lot of confused feelings about it, but I. I saw it as an interesting experiment, and mm. and a kind of, and it was framed in so many ways as it as it hits um apprehension by uh, kind of the wider eye and culture and so mm-hmm. you know this idea of the muse or um the woman wife even. woman wife. yeah like, yeah it's like I'm not a wife no but I think the thing is and I think you know it's nice about art because the painting is I think it's a really good painting because yeah, it captures something really it captures something of that reluctance or that recalcitrance mm. or some part of me that is holding back but also still fully in in a mode of play with him and mm. um yeah that's a really interesting painting i was immediately drawn to it because it looks so complicated and yet so simple at the same time yeah and my eyes in it are really they you can see my kind of doubt and hesitation and a slight sense of aversion but also a sense of like I don't know. I, I I see it, and I I mean I've said this before, but I can see my mother and grandmother looking back at me. So Weird. I think my partner must have captured something of yeah. me that's quite intimate. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. I don't think I'm amused in that no. I p- power on his practice. <laughs> I think no. isn't that the muse's job to kind of give you know. some kind of libidinal power to keep painting? I don't. I, know. I don't know, but maybe you're helping change what. The powers of a muse are. I hope so. You know, because hopefully we're in a time where they can um, dictate perhaps what the painter paints rather than just being an object of desire. Absolutely. And I also think it was quite good, you know, during that time I was definitely given 
an opportunity to speak back. Mm. You know, I was not silenced as a muse and I was... You mean in the media? In the media mm-hmm. and in the kind of just reception of the painting. And um, well, That's good, isn't it? Yeah, I felt I felt like it was received like I was a person, not just a kind of object of a painter's gaze. Something in the room. Yes. <laughs> no, that's really, I mean, I think that's really encouraging and I think the criticism of it was just people basically being silly as yeah. per usual <laughs> or just not understanding and so, yeah, that's how it is. But let's talk about your work. Um, the first time I encountered your work, I remember being completely just enthralled I think it was it was the first iteration of the every artist remembered series and I think it was at ACA um, was that the first time you did it it was actually the second time okay. the first time I did it was in 2009 at first draft gallery in Sydney and uh-huh. that was I think in 2009 it was I just finished art school and it was like a real it had an incredible charge to it because I had that energy you have when you kind of are, uncovering something yeah and a recent graduate and Again, I, I was, and then when Hannah put me into that, Hannah Matthews put me That's into right. the show, um, Power to the People, um, power, what was it called? Power to the People, Conceptualism and something, something, something. <laughs> it was a very long title. I was like, what? Um, I, <laughs> really? Like, like I genuinely couldn't understand what my work was doing in that context. Really? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm sometimes for quite relatively intelligent person I <laughs> seem to have incredible blind spots and but maybe that's part of the thing that allows you to just do what you I mean if you're super aware of what other people think of you sometimes that's debilitating I think so and if I had have known I was kind of moving into this territory I I wouldn't have done it and I moved into it from this place of yeah as I said like this charge wanting to understand the field and wanting to see the field like have a mm. visual sense of the players in this field and I just um yeah yeah we should maybe explain the work because people listening might not know of this work um but basically and correct me if I'm wrong you work with one artist who's sitting down a large piece of like butcher's paper and a pen fine art paper sorry fine art paper (laughs) oh yeah of course archival (laughs) a big piece of archival fine art frameable paper yes um and a sharpie pen and you have a conversation uh it's quite specific so it's you quite procedural no it's oh. um sorry to say no no say um no. it's a um it's an exercise so i i i invite the artist to participate and they and i make it very clear in the email that it's a it's a kind of exercise a procedural exercise where they say one artist's name remember one artist's name and then i reply with another artist so the the remembrance is always in dialogue and it's always the only rule is that the names are to be said in relation to one another so mm-hmm. so they're pairs really they're mm-hmm. pairs but then they it's more like a thread so mm-hmm. the it continues the pairs proliferate and so you i the, the way i see it is like you together carve one particular path or canyon through the the massive mm. bedrock of art history yeah so it is it's relative to each other's understanding and networks and yeah. um political you know alliances or whatever. and desire to memorialize different people and mm. for me the act of writing the name had a really strong political mm. sense weight yeah, yeah. yeah as and I thought I think that's amazing like that when you actually reduce history to the act of historicizing to just the simple act of writing, mm. writing and writing a name, naming someone. But also I think the the thing that struck me was just that canonization of artists often happens from, from it's created by non-artists mm. often. So what it does is empowers two 
to artists to actually have a say in who, who those names are that are remembered, which in history or throughout history we haven't really had that say. Yeah, and it came out of a lot of frustration about that as well. I think I'd, I don't know, like I, I wanted, of course there's that, you know, especially, you know, it was so powerful to do it with amazing female artists that I just have mm-hmm. so much respect for and map these histories that w- would otherwise not have been recorded in mm-hmm. any way, like similar to your project, this mm-hmm. project, and and to circumnavigate any kind of gatekeeper so any that's right but I, ironically you know I'm the privileged I'm in the privileged <laughs> yep. position of being allowed to do it at first draft first and then at, at ACA like to have that huge venue but don't I mean I don't think you should uh, like I think that there is a privilege in that but you've worked you have to sort of identify that you want to do that that's not a small thing and then you have to explain that you have to get the space to do that that's mm. there's a lot of people that can't you know what I mean <laughs> yeah, like yeah it's not like it just landed in your lap and no. someone said hey here's a project do it no but I just think it's so hard to 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 bend out of these these kind of really deep grooves mm-hmm. of privilege that totally um that continue you know that you can that you that you willingly fall into again and again yeah. and again I, this work was always an attempt to, to kind of get out of it and yeah. but you know I do have to acknowledge that you know certain you know there's always exclusion it's, yeah yeah well you can't do it with everyone no. but you can choose and I think that's our responsibility now in thinking about who we um, do mm. document or collaborate with mm. it's really important to pull in marginalized voices um, yeah no I definitely think about that all the time as well um, but one of the things with that project that I really the more I looked at it and how it's evolved through to I mean you did it recently at Freeze in London and you've there's been many iterations since but that idea of um, memory and even someone else's memory as a as a material mm. I think is just fascinating mm. I think I always had this sense that the I think because I'd come through performance training and a lot of the work I'd done was in kind of embodiment and mm. and when I studied performance studies from a more theoretical perspective there was a lot of focus on like the body becoming the thing it does so hmm. the body fitting into its field or its world like a hand fits into a glove and mm. and the incorporation of all this information into the body and having worked as well with dancers and performers and seeing all that embodied knowledge and I, I think mm. I always have this thing like the museum is the body like like if we could mm. access the all the experience in our bodies that is the most complex museum of art you know and yeah um Every Artist Remembered was an attempt to kind of pull that out and I've done a number of projects which kind of try and deal with like finding ways to, to yeah. make visible that, that archive that's inside our bodies. And that's the thing, it's, it, that, that memory is such an invisible force. I mean, lately I've been thinking a lot about those invisible materials and they don't, I mean, voice is one as well mm. that, that's actually really powerful but in white um, colonial kind of um, tradition in art, Western voice is not ever given any. I mean, you, you look at Indigenous history; voice is really powerful. It's like that's the storytelling is is everything. But in our tradition, it's co- quite frustrating because things like memory and voice aren't. Well, maybe there just hasn't been a way until now to that was mm. acceptable to record them. But also that action of you, um, like the action of writing as a performance, is quite interesting. Mm. Oh. Yeah, I think <laughs> it must be terrifying <laughs> to write. I love the idea that the mark is the mark. The moment is the moment. The 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 terror and horror of of any impending action is part of that action, and that action precipitates more action. And and that 
and that that is the work. Like to me, that is amazing. You know, and and a mistake is can be treated with desire, and humiliation can become power. And um, you know, that the 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 revelation of the vulnerability of personhood is so intrinsic to how every work I make. I think. And those little mistakes, I mean, you can't help but your eye gets drawn to them where something's been crossed out, like either you've, you know, you you sort of then think about that situation where someone said, actually, no, it's not spelled like that or, and you sort of scribble it out. (laughs) Yeah, but it's so great. Like it's, it's, it makes it much more real. Otherwise, um, maybe in the future, you could look at these documents and think, well, without the story of knowing how it happened, mm. someone might have just written them out. Mm. But those mistakes add, um, make it genuine in a, in a kind of odd way, don't they? They do. And I think that, you know, they are performance documents as well mm. as kind of autonomous objects and, and that those notations or scribbles and mm. kind of confusion is part of the performance as well. And um, what was I about to That's say? That's so funny because I just looked at my list and the next thing on my list was document document as art or mm. object and I think that that I mean with your practice that there must be sort of like a fine line there where you don't want to put too much weight on that object although you do do it on archival paper so mm. you, you are self-aware enough that that object will live outlive you mm. you know in a I sense. think yeah definitely and um but there's also a sense that I've been I think which I actually learned at acting school I have to say the idea of the preparation of the space and so mm. if you're going to if you're going to do an action, the space needs to be prepared. And hmm. to heighten that experience, I'm going to use a piece of really expensive paper hmm. that I know that will become an object. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to use a, a Posca pen that I know how it works. And oh, I'm not a Sharpie. Not a, a Sharpie, Posca, 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 Posca paint pen. I was going to correct you before, but I was like, no. stop correcting. No, correct me. <laughs> it's all good. Um, I'm glad I know. Um, you know, so so the there is a sense that, like, it's interesting because I don't know if it's just um, what's it called, in service of the performance because mm-hmm. it g- gives the performance that heightened quality or whether it is because of my consciousness that it, w- it will enter into some kind of historicization mm-hmm. or art market ultimately, mm-hmm. you know. Well, it will. Even if you don't want it to, it will. Yeah. And you look back at, I mean, interestingly, I guess, often painters during their time, their paintings are all that is sees the light of day. But as time goes on, uh, more is unearthed. Mm. And I find it really interesting now that your practice is pretty much putting that unearthed part up first, or there's mm. not any, there's nothing else. There's nothing else, no. That's really fascinating <laughs> yeah. to me, you know. And it, often if you speak to a painter that's in their 80s or 90s, if they're still around, a lot of their preparatory sketches, they just treat them like rubbish, you know, that's not. Whereas for me, they're the most in- interesting part. Mm. So it's almost like you've pared back so much that there's not even a... An object. There's, no there's not even outcome. I remember I did a show at, um, when I had my Gertrude Street studio for the studio show and it was just these Posca pens on butcher's paper mm. and they were like prepared. They, well, they weren't even, they weren't. They weren't preparatory preparations for anything Mm. other than themselves but they were so raw and I was like but to me they were the most accomplished thing I'd ever done (laughs) and and I think I think I just also have Mm. a very strong sense that my strength is not in making beautiful rarefied art objects my Mm. strength is in engaging in the process and undoing some of those Mm. expectations and and I know so many people who are so good at making paintings well often I think about I'm and in some ways 
the most visible part of my practice is talking and but I also make things but I often think I don't have that put that much weight often on the things you know so sometimes it's the reverse it's almost like those things could just be discovered in 50 years and I'm quite happy with that that's quite nice yeah but it's weird how usually people like to keep themselves quite private but I've never felt the need to do that and I assume you're quite happy with being public but do you sway between wanting to hide and wanting to be visible as a as a person Mm. in your work um definitely and um I think it causes a lot of angst mm. and just learning. I think in my 30s I've begun to try and learn about boundaries and how um, kind of the creation of those boundaries is actually makes the art more potent. Mm. And um, so, yeah, like, and I've always swayed between it and I always, you know, to begin with thought you had to, you had to really put it all out there. So what are your boundaries? Um, you don't have to say. No, what are my boundaries? Mm. I think just a, just a recognition of a bit of self-preservation. So, so I don't need to, um, I mean, but, I, you know, when I made a work for New in 2010, it was these rules, like you don't have to tell everyone everything all the time. <laughs> oh, that's a good rule. wish I followed that more. <laughs> and, you know, so obviously I had the rules there, the boundaries Now there. I'm getting you to tell me everything. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I'm like, hang on, is this, is this a breach? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a breach. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what I don't know I don't know what exactly my boundaries are. I think having a family makes you more conscious yeah. of your boundaries and and your capacity. So I think before I felt like my capacity was just ever expansive. Endless. Yeah. yeah. And now I feel like because my capacity is limited, my boundaries are more clear and hmm. um so they're pragmatic really boundaries because you burn out otherwise. You burn out, but you can burn out emotionally and I think that's the big thing I wish I had have known as a someone in my 20s and early 30s hmm. like um, to preserve that emotional energy with a bit more care. Mm. No, I definitely understand you there. I think also being a mother is something that, you know, you pour out. People that aren't mothers don't quite understand what it is to pour out that sort of emotional labour daily, mm. nightly, <laughs> like in your sleep. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps as an artist and a mother that used to just go all into your art, or for me it used to go all into my art, and it's like a partner might get a little bit of it yeah. if they're lucky yeah. but, um, or friends, but all was in my art. And so now all of a sudden you have this, you do have to share that emotional labour and it's, yeah. I think I was describing it as a plat and Mm -hmm. um, the plat has now got like, maybe it's like a very complex French braid or something. It's got four, you know, four (laughs) bulk, what what are they called? Streams. Streams. Strings. (laughs) Strings of hair. And, Clumps. and it's just you have to be very conscientiously attending to it all the time, like make huh. sure the hair is well conditioned yeah, <laughs> so it yeah. doesn't get matted. Oh, and, and doesn't go out of doesn't order. Doesn't go out of order. Well. Make yeah. sure one's not getting too thin, one's not getting thick. Mm, that's a really good yeah, analogy. Not too brittle. And I feel like that's kind of the labour now that, you know, it's that balance that, that mm. I'm trying to learn about rather than just this full giving myself over to an art world that doesn't necessarily give anything back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't say that. Um, but the other thing I think just in terms of having, say you've got a plat within one of the, str- the strands of yeah. the plat as well, because um, having a practice where you have different streams within that, which mm. I'm endlessly, f- and pretty much everyone I've spoken to in this series does does that, mm. like a, a slashy, I like to call mm. us. Uh, I mean, I find myself instinctively having almost like a rotational gestational period for one part of your practice and then another can step in and almost relieve the other part. Do you think of that consciously or is that an unconscious? I think that um, staggering projects is very 
important because I know so when I did rhetorical chorus last year, which was a huge yeah, I was going to ask you about that, um, yeah. a huge theatre spectacular, kind of an inadvertent. Um, as someone said, that's your opera. I was like, again, <laughs> opera. What's an opera? Yeah, what's <laughs> um, a word? Though? Yeah, uh, you know, like energetically, it's it's it was so much to to you know the thinking behind the work was one thing, but then to make that materialize, you know, with twenty collaborators and mm. huge stage and four nights and my beautiful Lizzie, my one of my primary dancers, having a very bad injury on opening night, oh, and like no. the complexity of. Um, putting anything into the world, mm. which where things can go, go wrong, wrong mm. is just a huge amount of emotional and, you know, you're committing to a huge thing. I mean, I just have so much respect for people that do those huge works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, I mean, everyone, I just think the responsibility is huge. Yeah. And so then I, th- I think since that I've had a, a bit of a very much more quiet year and a much more uh, mm-hmm. a year of thinking about kind of um, – Sol- my solo practice and mm. um and you do have to consciously sort of say okay it's time now to just you know withdraw a bit think about me not yeah. not me as this conduit for all these other people or me as curator or yeah writer or whatever yeah and it's con- it is conscious in a way I think it? it is conscious mm. and I think it is um also just survival like you know like I just knew I was completely exhausted after that and that I needed to recoup some some kind of forces that were my own yeah and in that work, um, rhetorical chorus, the I didn't see the live performance. I've just seen documentation. But um, the words that exist behind, so on the screens, yeah. uh, how do they function in the work? What- so the work is kind of, it was a work that I conceived many, many years ago, like maybe, maybe even not that many, like eight years ago. And it was because I was fascinated with the kind of magnitude of Lawrence Wynock. Mm-hmm kind of, you know, 20th century icon of conceptual art, although he as well denies he's a conceptual really? artist. Mm. Yeah. And I was just, he was very clearly very influential to me and mm. um, but still has a huge currency in the international art world. and Longevity. Longevity and mm. um, there's something so potent about him. And, and I was curious to kind of begin to do a, a surgical analysis or like mm. some kind of analysis of that potency like how can I get to the bottom of this or dissolve it or why um, is it so strong why is it so strong why is why am I so drawn to this what's the gravity what's this gravity Um, and so I slowly began to kind of unpick this data collection that I'd done so I collected um, notated every all his hand gestures that he did in interviews and um, artist talks and I began to categorize them so I began to see the repetition his body language and how he uses used his hands as a kind of rhetorical device in his speaking. Mm. I um, notated his stutters and murmurs and half-formed thoughts in talks to kind of get a sense of the moments of doubt in his kind of oration and to mm. s- understand, yeah, where that where the space was in his kind of rhetoric and mm. that was always so convincing to me. I got, I mean, and this is an example of collaboration. Like I was working with so many people. Mitch Cumming, who is an amazing artist, he helped me um, as because I just had a baby at this time as well, and he helped me as a research assistant notate every Lawrence Weiner work ever made and put wow. them into a, um, a kind of Excel spreadsheet so we can search them by day. <laughs> Seems <laughs> almost absurd putting that it's, into a spreadsheet, though. <laughs> no, just, it, the whole thing was quite absurd, and yeah. often. It was going further and it was so absurd. It was kind of pataphysical. Like it was going further and further from any kind of 
clean <laughs> conceptualism that I kind of had envisaged. Didn't that just feel a bit like a freight train kind of? It was. Uh, it was a freight train. Control? But I, I, ha- I was like, I just have to stay on it. And then it kept getting more opportunities. And we, we had more people go, jumping on yeah, board. Yeah, more people jumping on board. And I was like, what? What? This is just getting out of control. But what it became was something so much so far from Lawrence Weiner and it be, you know and he became an emblem for a certain sort of male 20th century artist amused really amused but also <laughs> someone that I could um so, a, a figure that uh kind of yeah became emblematic of something else mm. and then so the work became about a kind of line of flight away from him and mm. uh with so many people involved and so an, an incredible chorus of singers and Brooke Stamp and Lizzie Thompson as dancers and Brian Fodder as the prologue. Joan, look, I'm just doing like a list of things. Joan LaBarbera as the epilogue. But like it, it, but it's hard because they're in- equally important. Megan Clune as the incredible music director and composer. <laughs> they're, they're equally important yeah. um, as you as the sort of auteur. It's yeah. Those people, without them, it doesn't exist, right? So it's it's a microcosm or microcosm. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, like uh, it's so important to acknowledge the the many people that made that work possible mm. and it does I mean to me so the text so the question yeah. you asked about what was the text behind the work it was fragments these kind of ums and ah fragments quoted from Lawrence Weiner but when I when I inserted them into this kind of very elaborate field of action I'd constructed yeah. it became this beautiful dialogue with the dancers with mm. the prologue and so in a sense it was a huge um collage you know like I'd collage I was going to say it's kind of like together. an abstract illustration of his gaps or something yeah yeah and he's um I look I'm not talking about it that well today but no um, it's great it was a it was a pretty it was a pretty uh I'd say it was quite like a bit of a wild work and did people want to call that theater what did people call it oh I mean apart from the person well, I wanted to like people opera. to watch it like it was visual art yeah and I think it's really hard to watch something like it's visual art when you walk into a theater and it goes yeah. black and then there's action that slowly unfolds you have all so, the tropes of yeah theater, yeah um which I was really interested in borrowing and I didn't know how far to take it I mean just the complexity of all the the palette that was mm-hmm. available to me which I'm so used to pulling away all the palette and then suddenly I had time and space and people, mm. performers, lighting, sound, kind of conventions, mm. you know, like um, it became so dense. So the, the interpretation of it, I think, kind of got a bit lost, the analysis interpretation, like the audience's response. Mm. How can they watch it as visual art if it's, you know, and I don't know if that's a failure of the work, but I think it did, it is like a maybe a limit, like how do we watch something that we don't know how to watch. But also, do you think it's because, I mean, words, I mean, words are problematic. The written word or the typed word is problematic in itself because we have this long standing history of that being literature or mm. being instructional or whatever. But then the word as a material in the world on stage with a body, it's mm. like, that's a really good way to fuck with people. Mm. Like, <laughs> I think that confused people, but then the words disappeared and the language began splintering and kind of shredding itself mm. and um, confounding itself. And, you know, the, the gesture became primary. And um, But then ultimately the, the singers and dancers became primary. Just the sound, non-linguistic sounding mm. and physicalization became primary so the, the the work was really about this tra- trajectory out of the word almost stripping away that language until it's just primal it, it or was something. it was yeah. yeah and I'd always um envisage that as the conceptual structure of the work mm. but then when you do that it just becomes so much more 
complex. And I think (laughs) as although I've trained a lot in performance, being a theatre director to that extent, and now I'm even saying theatre director, you know, because that's actually what I was kind of doing was just, it was just a very big task. Yeah, sounds amazing. But sounds like it opened up a whole lot more questions, which, you know, you then can follow all these different threads. Yeah. Make some new plats. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> um, what, one thing that I've got written in a box is words in the world, which I sort of touched on then, but that there seems to be an ongoing fascination with your work. And recently the work that you did, I think, in Surrey Hills where the words are sort of like painted yeah. across a whole sort of different surfaces of a laneway. Am mm. I right in saying that? Mm. But also a work that, that struck me when I saw it at the Biennale in Cockatoo Island in 2016, um, physical doorways, mm. three ways, mm. or physical doorway, three mm. ways. That work I was just so fascinated in and spent so much time sort of thinking about but not really knowing what I was thinking about. Mm. But that idea of those words in the world, like can you – talk about that yeah so I think physical doorway at the Cockatoo Island was one of the strangest works I've ever made Mm, strange but great (laughs) Um, it was you know like I think Kelly Flydner said something really interesting you know she geographically understood it and you know because it's very visible from the peninsula and I think I'm when I'm working typographically or visually with kind of this very graphic arts Mm. it is really on a um not a very it's it doesn't have that cleanness of conceptualism. It's not it's on a very intu- it's on a very intuitive level. So it's a bit foggy, really. It's a very foggy, yeah. and um, but I follow the fog with such mm. with a sharp knife, is that, mm. if that's possible. Yeah. No, no, it's like you get like getting lost in it. Or yeah, something. and I mm. and I am unrelenting with how I pursue it. But I and once you've gone so far, like with rhetorical chorus, you've I'd gone so far you can't. And even though I'm aware everything's quite foggy and and ambiguous and also possibly unclear, I I have a a real tenacious attitude towards getting to to the most the kind of the the core of the idea, even mm. though if I'm not unsure what it is. So physical doorway is really an example of that. And the words, you know, I thought about it so much, and I was like, what? Like, if it, okay, physical doorway came from when I was pregnant. I found on the floor a, a a business card size card that said on it physical doorway. Really? Yeah. And uh, I found it on a road or I can't remember where I found it. And <laughs> and I put it like I I don't know what it was. And I put it on my wall. And so as I was kind of in the first couple of months of um my getting to know my baby, I would often reflect upon this idea of <laughs> Look a physical at this doorway. Curious, thing. yeah. And I and I, you know, and at that time I was so interested in how I had become a physical doorway, mm. and um, but also how kind of this same idea of like what what is it to open yourself onto something else? And to me, that's what that work is about. And I've done so many iterations of that work, so I must find something very interesting. What about was the card for? I really did. I have a phone number on it. No, no, no. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, a lot of the work comes from that that kind of interaction with found material. So yeah, interesting. You can almost think of the Lawrence Weiner as coming from that interaction with found material as a mm. rhetorical chorus. And um, I made another work that was shown at Anna Schwartz in a sh- show curated by Charlotte Day in a long time ago mm. called Social Sculpture. And the work said, "Do not, do not approach this end of the room. Do not cross the yellow line." It became a really um, a very potent work for me too, but it was a quotation from a, an, a this amazing 
um, place in New Zealand called in Wanaka called Puzzling World, oh, wow. which is like a, a cryptic um, Sounds fun like your park. homeland. It was, it's definitely <laughs> my homeland. You could just move there. You could be their mascot. So I, I, I think I am and they just don't know. <laughs> um, but, you know, like so there's often these quite banal um, starting points for the work and mm. the work – However, the work at Weems Lane in Surrey Hills, which is part of um, the work I did for the Biennale of Sydney, is was the result of this very long um, process I did with dancer and choreographer Brooke Stamp, mm-hmm. where we kind of walked through the city every day for three months, for the duration of the Biennale, and, and kind of in the same way started to glean this language. And that language that's in the land right now is the remnant of is that it process. Still there? Yeah, it's got a 25-year longevity. So, wow. Yeah, and do they preserve it for that? Yeah, long? they do. And because wow. it's um, it's roadmarking material. And so I wanted to use something that really was in the kind of language of vernacular a city, of vernacular of a city, yeah. and that, that would come into their um, normal scheduled road maintenance programs. And how do they – have you got feedback from the from the real world um, <laughs> that of how people are interacting with that work? I've had some feedback. I mean, it's pretty – what would you call it? It's not even poetic. It's it's um like random. unobtrusive or something. <laughs> yeah, or random. Yeah. Um, but I think people people seem to really like it. Like some people say, there's always people photographing it there in a kind of laneway artway. You know, like a. But there's not been any garbos or anything that we're like, what's this going no. up the wall? <laughs> no, I think we had to get it. We did we did a lot of um, oh, yeah, talking yeah. to all the stakeholders and. Thinking about, you know, and some of the works were made in response to conversations I'd had with different people in the laneway. And, mm. you know, like I wanted to do something that was unobtrusive, actually. Mm. Like I was really interested in a, an unobtrusive piece of public art and not in an apologetic way, but mm. just in a, a way that I thought, let's think about kind of how small public art can be and how in- integrated it can be. And again, I I was so aware of not wanting to take up this physical space because I thought it was more interesting to do something that was very embedded. That was painted onto surfaces painted, or yeah. still usable in a yeah, way. And it, yeah. But is that something that in the future, I mean, public the public realm is quite different to, say, the art realm. We're in a protected space mm. that's loaded with sort of expectation and explanation. But in the public space, is that something, do you think you'll do more work in that sort of, un, you know, puzzle world? <laughs> um. I am doing some public commissions at the moment. I, I think it's, I think it's really. I mean, I, I think it's good to have puzzling things in the mm, public sphere. So do I. I. And I don't mean that in a pithy way. It sounds so pithy when no, I no. say it. But for me, you know, like they're they're the things you know that I've always found things that don't quite make sense yeah. that are like a hook. I find very just. Very spirited, you know, like mm-hmm. that changes my experience of public space, mm-hmm. um, but not in a kind of too didactic way. I just, yeah. Did you, um, like as a little girl, did you, you know, how did you have this same sort of way of looking at things? Yeah, I think so. I think I just, I, I have a sense of the strangeness of the world and the strangeness of being myself or a human mm, being and in the world, being yeah. in the world and yeah but it doesn't often I mean often people that have this way of thinking can tend towards the dark like the pessimistic side of things or the sort of dramatic kind of apocalyptic mm. but you don't seem to have that it's it's kind of quite rem- clinic not clinical but removed of that body it's almost like spiritual I think is a good word in a 
but not spiritual in a woo-woo way. Mm. But that sort of like quite objective way of looking at the weirdness or the oddness. Yeah, I think uh, I don't know how to describe, and, and I, maybe it's the best way to, is kind of connected to your question about language. Like for me, language is always that thing. Language is a thing that can move from sense. A word can move from sense to nonsense. So seamlessly mm-hmm. and meaning and this is why art is so good because meaning can kind of appear momentarily and disappear. and disappear yeah as a little girl I was obsessed with Alice in Wonderland just for that reason I watched it over and over and over like I might find something out but that I think that idea of just being lost in a, a parallel world that refers continuously to the world that we live in but doesn't make any sense and then you start to look at the world that we do live in as not making sense. I think Mm. for kids, I mean, Lewis Carroll had something there that was, whether that was (laughs) drug-induced or not, I mean. That's so funny because I've actually never read Alice in Wonderland but last night I read it to my son. Oh, really? Yes. weird. (laughs) Because I've been doing my, this recent work is... I'm working in virtual reality. Oh, really? Yeah, and um, which is quite like absolutely terrifying. So <laughs> no, I'm like completely obsessed, Are which you? is amazing to mm. feel that feeling again. And um, someone yesterday said that's kind of it's very Alice in Wonderland your experience of it. And then I just ha- Roland got Alice in Wonderland from the bookshelf last night. That is mentioned it today. Pretty odd. <laughs> Something's telling you. Uh, I could keep talking about Puzzle Land forever. There's something something that flipped some switch in my brain, you know. I can't. I just find it so interesting, your whole practice, and I have thoroughly enjoyed this time we've had together. So I'd like to genuinely thank you. Thank you so much, Tite. Great pleasure. And I feel like we opened some puzzling things that we haven't closed, but that's okay. I don't want to close those doors. Let's do this again sometime. Okay, thanks, Di. See ya. I really was reminded of Alice when I spoke to Agatha. What an energetic, careful curiosity she has. I love the way that she says that she genuinely doesn't know what she is. And yet, she goes on to be very clear about her method to always follow a series of decisions and take away anything extraneous, or to avoid visual litter, as she calls it. There were so many inspiring sentiments in this chat, from actually believing we can circumnavigate gatekeepers to the importance of being wary of falling into deep grooves of privilege, and basic clean ideas like heightening the anticipation of an action by properly preparing a space. I'm so encouraged by Agatha's commitment to creating boundaries and how she talks so honestly about not needing to make beautiful objects, but most of all, by her tenacious drive to follow the conceptual fog with a sharp knife. This conversation was hosted by me, Ty Snape. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know me. I'm actually making a series of artworks inspired by each of these conversations. If you're interested, the first iteration is showing now at Sarah Scout Presents in Collins Street, Melbourne, and running until the 10th of November 2018. After that, the documentation will live on my website. For more information about the project and the artists I'm speaking to, head to tysnaith.com. Thanks to my audio producer, Beck Fari, and Melbourne musician, Fia, spelled P-H-I-A, for letting us use this track, End of the Day, from her album, The Ocean of Everything. I would win a climb for 
This podcast was originally conceived as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. This second season and the exhibition is supported by the Australia Council for the Arts. And